to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we are back with number 10 on the AFI Top 100. Really getting there. We've cracked the top 10. The top and 10. the film that holds that top 10 spot is 1939's The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. Which I'm sure both you and I have seen before. Yes, of course. I mean, the question is who has not seen this movie? I'm sure it's possible because someone could look at that 1939 year and think, ah, oh, no. Yeah, but I feel like it's, I mean, it's always on TV. It's, it, every kid has seen, I mean, you know, what kind of sick childhood did you not have where you didn't see this movie? <laughs> I could see that, but also when the film starts, it's in that drenched sepia color. True. And you think, oh boy. If this is the we're, whole film, I'm out. We're in for a ride, yeah. So if you sit down to watch this and you see like a film that intends to look like the late 1800s, <laughs> I feel like you could get knocked off early before you get to the land of whimsy and color. That's fair. But if for some reason people haven't visited that land of whimsy and color, why don't you give us a plot synopsis? I will take you through it. So The Wizard of Oz is the story of Dorothy Gale, a young woman in Kansas who dreams of much more than just farm life. When her dog Toto is threatened with euthanasia by the evil Miss Gulch, Dorothy and Toto run away from home. Not far from home, she meets Professor Marvel, a fortune teller and huckster who implies that her aunt may be dying of a broken heart since she's left. Dorothy rushes home as a tornado approaches. Her family and their farmhands hide in the cellar, but Dorothy is forced to hide in the house. As the tornado hits, the house is lifted into the air, and Dorothy sees strange sights out of her window. The house lands, and Dorothy finds herself in a strange technicolor land called Oz. Her house and its landing has killed the Wicked Witch of the East, and thereby freed the friendly Munchkin people from her evil rule. Glinda, the Good Witch of the North, arrives to tell Dorothy the good news and to show her that she has inherited the witch's ruby slippers. The Munchkin celebrations are cut short, however, when the Wicked Witch of the West arrives to try to take Dorothy's new slippers. Unable to, but promising revenge, she flees. Glinda sees Dorothy, sends Dorothy to the Emerald City to meet the Wizard of Oz, who can help her return home to Kansas. On her way, she makes friends with a living scarecrow, a rusty tin woodsman, a cowardly lion, and all three of these plan to accompany her to see the wizard in hopes that they too will acquire help from the wizard. Hopefully they want a brain, a heart, and courage. They brave the many challenges set by the witch and arrive at the Emerald City. There the great Oz tells them he will help them if they bring back the wicked witch's broomstick. So the four leave for the witch's castle and are attacked by her flying monkeys who kidnap Dorothy and Toto. The witch suggests she will kill Dorothy when the hourglass that she flips runs up, but Toto is able to escape and lead the other three to Dorothy. The witch and her guards chase the group, and when the witch lights the scarecrow on fire, Dorothy throws water at him to put him out. However, she also splashes the witch, who melts away. The guards celebrate Dorothy and present her with the broomstick. Back in the Emerald City, the group presents the broomstick to the great and powerful Oz, who is revealed by Toto to be nothing more than a man. He still makes good on his promises, offering the Scarecrow a diploma, the Tin Man a heart clock, and the Lion a medal. He offers to take Dorothy with him to Kansas in his hot air balloon, but because Toto chases a cat at the last second, the wizard flies away without her. 
Glinda arrives in her bubble and tells Dorothy that she had the means to get home all along, the ruby slippers. Dorothy is instructed to tap her heels together three times and say there's no place like home. She finds herself back in her bedroom, surrounded by her friends and family, and after a tearful reunion, she insists that she will never run away again. I have many questions, Ethan. Ask them. Because I feel like as a kid, you watch this and you just accept the plot as Absolutely. It is. <laughs> and I can never be accused of being okay with the plot as it stands no, throughout the never. course of this podcast. <laughs> so why are all of her friends and even Professor Marvel, who she seems to barely know, become embodied in this dream world or actual translocated space or dimension i think the idea is that if you frame it as a dream and you have everybody play some sort of dream version of themselves then the audience at the end won't revolt when she just shows back up it's it, i feel like it makes it less fantastical there's a sort of way out you can take it a little more seriously maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know (laughs) another question why have the wizard fly away on the air balloon to kansas and she have to click her heels well i think that at the i think at the end of the whole thing this is a story about finding the resolve or finding the resources or the or the power to do what you always wanted to do within yourself right and it's sort of one last letdown right and one and it's one last way of the plot saying like here's your way out whoops we're taking it away from you i guess it also makes sense that it would be hard for her to wake up in bed after being knocked unconscious by the tornado when she comes out in a hot air balloon or something right well and on top of it the wizard of oz is a huckster right just like the um professor marvel and so of course his what he offers is is nothing it's useless right just like he offers the uh you know the three companions things that don't they don't really mean anything they don't they aren't real they're just symbols yeah and we're going to talk about that more in our pivotal scene but i don't want to underrate him too much because he gives them exactly what they need in that true true another question why does he need a broom I th- I I always sort of understood that as the impossible task that if he you know if you say bring me the moon then they'll never be able to do it and you never have to make good. Why do witches melt by water? That that one I can't answer for you. That one who fucking knows. And is that because of this film or does that come before with some sort of witchy lore? I think it's I think it's out of this. I I mean I don't quote me, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was if the maybe the source material the novel is where that comes from. Certainly the I'm melting comes from this. Yes. And I mean realistically that makes no sense that witches can't get wet. Their air is full of moisture. Unless what happens made of sugar? When- Unless, that's unless they're made of sugar. Well, you're bringing up the uh, signs problem. <laughs> the si- it is. It's the signs problem, which is also the problem of, like, if it's that easy to kill her, why didn't somebody just dump it on her at any moment? Everyone just really was in lockstep and didn't want to oppose her because they thought she was all-powerful. I mean, she knows Fireball. True. She knows. To, how, it's like the Super Mario Fireball that she's yeah. eaten the fire flower. And it just a little, it's a little ball <laughs> that she throws down and catches Scarecrow. Almost on yes. fire. 
And then actually next time she just burns her broom <laughs> to catch him on yeah. fire. Real downgrade. Also, by the way, that broom that she sets on fire, made of asbestos. Oh, great. Good. The scarecrow stuffed uh, in his suit, asbestos. The snow. The man, all asbestos. All asbestos. The snow that falls in the poppy field, straight asbestos. Did the actors have problems with that then later in life? I don't know, but you also have to remember that everybody smoked cigarettes. Yeah. And there was lead in the gasoline and, you know, and in the paint. So when everyone was just ill, older, they were like, well, this is just the human condition. Yes. People probably in in the late 30s, you could probably still seriously catch tuberculosis and die. <laughs> well, I think that's going to satisfy my questions for now. And okay. I did mention something about our pivotal scene, which is that scene in which the wizard gives each of the companions a symbol. Yes, a symbol. I like that we that we will call it that. So let's take a listen. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. Well, what about the heart that you promised Tin Man? Well, and the courage that you promised Cowardly Lion? Well, I'm scarecrow. Why, anybody can have a brain. That's a very mediocre commodity. Every pusillanimous creature that crawls on the earth or slinks through slimy seas has a brain. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning, where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got, a diploma. Therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Universitatis Comitiatum E Pluribus Unum, I hereby confer upon you the honorary degree of THD. <laughs> THD? Yeah, that's Doctor of Thinkology. The sum of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side. Oh, joy! Rapture! I've got a brain! How can I ever thank you enough? Well, you can't. As for you, my fine friend, you're a victim of disorganized thinking. You are under the unfortunate delusion that simply because you run away from danger, you have no courage. You're confusing courage with wisdom. Back where I come from, there we have men who are called heroes. Once a year, they take their fortitude out of mothballs and parade it down the main street of the city. And they have no more courage than you have. But they have one thing that you haven't got. A medal. Therefore, for meritorious conduct, extraordinary valor, conspicuous bravery against wicked witches, I award you the Triple Cross. You are now a member of the Legion of Courage. <laughs> Shucks, folks, I'm speechless. As for you, my galvanized friend, you want a heart. You don't know how lucky you are not to have one. Hearts will never be practical until they can be made unbreakable. But I, I still want one. Back where I come from, there are men who do nothing all day but good deeds. They are called Philip, uh, uh, yes, uh, good deed doers. And their hearts are no bigger than yours. But they have one thing you haven't got, a testimonial. Therefore, in consideration of your kindness, I take pleasure at this time in presenting you with a small token of our esteem and affection. And remember, my sentimental friend, that a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. 
Oh, it ticks. Look, it ticks. Read what my medal says. Courage. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? The reason I chose this is, like you mentioned, you know, crucial to the idea of what the story is trying to give us. You already effectively encapsulated the thesis in that what these people needed all along was within them. And there's also this sub current of it. None of it needs to be out there. Or if it is out there, it's only to return to the place you belong, which is home. Yes. It, this is, this is very much uh, a, an American style story about home, right? So much of American storytelling has to do with home, whether it's constructing the history of our home, whether it is, um, speculating how how our home will become great, right? It's all about home and exceptionalism and what you need is here and that that sort of thing. So it, it makes sense that this movie is all about that. It's about getting home. The journey isn't to go somewhere new, right? Because this is a hero's quest in some way, but it's the hero's quest back home. Yeah, and I, I do want to say it's an Americanized idea, but certainly... There's a plethora of cultures that sure. have this idea of you go out into the world to enrich yourself and then return home. Yes, yes. But this yes. is the American brand of it. Yes, exactly. That's that's what I mean. So I mentioned I wanted to dig deeper into these symbols because we do see an actual shift in the three companions. I'm talking about Dorothy's companions. Yes. She is one of the companions, but of course we think of these three as you know, a group and they do shift when they get these items, right? Suddenly, yeah. what is it? Pythagor- Pythagoras, theorem that yeah. uh, the Scarecrow knows <laughs> Seems after know. receiving his THD. Yes. And that seems to be the case. But of course the way back for that is you can say, well, he's the one actually who has ideas most notably when they're assaulting the witch's fortress He's the one who says, oh, I can drop this chandelier on them. And it's yeah. just kind of like pointing it out to them. Like, here's what you can do to to do this, which I don't know if this is a reference many people will get. But this reminds me a lot of Futurama when Bender doesn't think he has free will, but yet just keeps pointing other people into making these decisions. <laughs> and so it's kind of like this game of, well, you don't have this thing, but it's, of course, still there. But you're denying its existence by, you know, shoveling it out to other people. Right. In in some way. Same way in which the lion does a lot of courageous things, even though he doesn't think he has courage. Right. Oh, and, and the Tin Man, right? I mean, he's the most emotional. He even talks in this breathy voice because he's so emotional. Oh. And his oh. accent, my gosh. And he's always crying. He oh. just wants a hat. He just wants a hat. Give oh. me a hat. And they, of course, yeah, so they all have exactly what they think they don't, right? Which I think maybe that's why it's a little misleading to have them act different upon receiving the symbol. Or maybe that's also contiguous when you think like, okay, once they have recognized it in themselves, it can manifest more clearly. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just subterranean. So it, maybe it's not as complicated as I'm making it out. But I do think it it being sort of the central message of the film, the major takeaway, it is intriguing to look at it and say like, well... Does it matter that you get the piece of paper, the piece of metal, right, to say that you are these things? And it kind of reminds me of 
expertise culture, the idea of who yeah. is an expert. And I think when you look at it that way, it becomes a lot more interesting than the answer was in you all along. It becomes right. something about, well, we still play by these rules in yeah. the modern world. And unless you have that piece of paper, then, well, you're not allowed to get, well, in our case, tenure track jobs. Sure, yeah. But in other fields, you are not listened to. Yeah, there, there's, there is something about the recognition that I think is important, even if the recognition, as this sort of uh, points out to us, it comes from a place of silliness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, I mean, if we think about the idea of a degree as, as you know, as a real world analogy to this, like that's just a group. Of, you've, you've done some things and a group of people have said, here you go. Right. Or a medal. Right. You know, it, and I think that that's something that is very obvious in the in the era of Trump. Right. When he's giving presidential medals of freedom to Rush Limbaugh, you know, and, and Rush Limbaugh's coming out the next day saying all this homophobic, awful racist stuff i mean it's just a symbol being given that we've decided has meaning right that 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 represents something uh but it was just other people who who gave it that meaning right and now that sound now i sound like i'm a rambling circuitous arguer but i think that's sort of what is happening here right like who is the wizard of oz himself he's just a man yeah and i think one thing that takes us even further is that these symbols are ostensibly equal right yeah. if we both get a medal for courage right that's supposed to mean the same thing but the acts that led to that are different different we're both going to have phds in the near future yeah and both of our journeys through that are are different and yeah yet they mean the same thing ostensibly i think ostensibly, that's that's yeah. very interesting that it's how we operate as a shorthand and yet as you pointed out these things aren't equal and they are arbitrary, right? Because they're a sign that we've all agreed upon yeah. means, you know, what it means. But this film buys into that myth that we perpetuate today. So I think it's a it's a cultural touchstone that I don't think we often take the time to think about. Well, I think it buys in, but I think it is a little subversive, right? Because he gives, you know, the the when that little ceremony that he gives out, you know, the professor of thinkology and da 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 da. I mean, these are all. If you if you aren't a child and you're hearing this, it's all silly things that are that almost mean something but don't, right? Uh, so I I do think that it kind of under, and it, and of course we know that the Wizard of Oz is a is a huckster. So th- these are things that are kind of being given almost as a joke. But taken seriously, which, again, I think is an interesting thing, right, because it's a, a lot of times when you're outside of these institutions that grant these things, whether it's a degree or, um, you know, a medal or, or whatever, right, these different things that can be granted to you, they mean something when you're outside of it. They mean something different when you're inside of it, right? When you're inside of it, 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 it certainly does feel more arbitrary, at least to me, right, uh, because you're like, well, it's, it wasn't that hard, Right. Uh, or it was hard, but it just t- takes a lot of time and work and you can do, you know what I mean? Do you sort of get what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I like that read better because I do think you can look at this as the wizard character as subverting our expectations about expertise and symbols and sign systems. Yeah. And I think that's important, right? Uh, this also reminds me of another question that I had about why the wizard... Right, so Frank Morgan 
mm-hmm. is he all these other characters for fun or is it actually the wizard or is that supposed to be another arbitrary like why is he like these four people leading up to the wizard i'm i'm not sh- i'm not sure and i think as a kid i always assumed it was that it was just the wizard being silly but now i think that maybe it's just because they liked frank morgan which he doesn't right I, I, yeah i don't disagree and i think he's great uh but it is a strange choice and maybe it maybe it is also meant to add to the sort of uh strangeness of the world that by that point is is kind of beginning maybe to break down right like if you see the same guy they they're really hitting it over the head that this is professor marvel that is also the doorman that is also the wizard that is all right yeah. uh and and so maybe there's that that's the dream beginning to break apart or or the beginning of the world you know starting to have holes poked in it which maybe makes sense why it's so easy to kill the witch right because it, this is a dream right at the end of the mm-hmm. day and it and it does not follow reality and it's part of door we and dorothy right are are beginning to see that like this maybe isn't as terrifying and strange as it was maybe it is not it's sort of like as you wake up from a dream have you ever had that right where all of a sudden you're like this doesn't feel quite right and then shortly after you're awake right yeah exactly now maybe i'm giving too much credit to the to the sort of affect of the film but i I think that's kind of interesting because it does seem to be more heavy-handed at the end of course it's also the end so maybe they're wrapping it up because you have to fucking wrap a movie up i mean (laughs) who knows right yeah, I, I can buy into that. But I also think because there are other people in Emerald City, like I wish it was all just Frank Morgan. Like oh everyone my God, you look right? at, man, woman, child, it's just Frank Morgan. Like Malkovich, like Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Exactly. Malkovich. I, I think that would have been good. But then maybe it's just the entire bureaucracy of Emerald City is Frank Morgan as the wizard. And I think maybe that is important too. But in any case, I think we've lingered long enough, and we really need to turn to our three questions. Sure. For that, let's talk about Anchor. Okay. Okay, Ethan, first question. What do we owe to this film? What do we owe to this film? Well, this is one of the most notable examples of the, it was all a dream, uh, uh, endings, you know, that that we'd see often enough. Yeah. And I think this is one that, you know, a lot of times that feels like a cop-out and it's unfair. Here it doesn't feel like that. Maybe because it's novel. And maybe because it doesn't take itself too seriously. Sure. It's not like she lived a long and prosperous life in Oz and wakes up and it's like, no, no, have it. Or she experiences some great tragedy or something. So right. I think, yeah, that kind of erases the, the stakes of it being a dream. And, and it also does feel a little bit like the sort of return from the land of fairy right that like maybe it was a dream maybe it wasn't that's part of the trickster nature of the world of fairy right or the land Mm -hmm. of oz which is just a stand-in for it uh so of course there's that yeah i have a lot of things i was thinking of as i was watching the film thinking like oh well i've seen this before or this is what you know there this comes from so I think intermixed in this, right? You have a lot of Snow White. Yeah, definitely. And of course, Snow White would be what is it? Slightly before this. I think it's either. I think it maybe is the year 
before. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. And so that, I felt like there was some influence there, certainly, at least aesthetically. And, and I think I read something about, the, the, you know, that this movie was perhaps in some way a response to that or, or connected mm-hmm. uh, because Snow White was so... Yeah, Snow, it was 37. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was 37. So it would make sense that, like, yes, we can adapt another children's story in a very fantastical way and people will take it seriously. The lion reminds me a lot of Chico Marx. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. So very similar comedy stylings in that same vein. And then everything that comes after this... Right. Well, I guess I don't really know where Dr. Seuss comes down, but you can definitely feel some Seuss vibes from yeah. this. Although Seuss, I you know, Olivia just watched for some class this documentary about Dr. Seuss, and he was such a political figure. Because uh, the, the, I think the documentary was called the, the Dr. Seuss, the politics or something like that or the whatever. Uh, what a fun I, name. Yeah, right. It sounds really boring, but it was really interesting. Um and I feel like that definitely there's some of that whimsy here that I think he is able to make more political, to have more of a, a message that is reflective of the times, right? Because this feels very out of its period. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It feels very yeah. much like escapism, uh, which makes sense because this is in, in 39, right? Like the world is not doing so hot in 1939. <laughs> Things are not going well. And then a couple other clickies that I saw, just maybe because of a scene, I think with all the terrifying flying monkeys, mm-hmm. get, I get some uh, Flash Gordon vibes. Yeah, with definitely. The angel guys with Brian Blessed leading them. Mm-hmm. The labyrinth is all over this film. Yes, absolutely. And then the final scene where they are going to leave in the hot air balloon is very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can even read some Star Wars into this, right? Like, oh sure, yeah. Th- there's a lot of that uh, in in this sort of spectacle and the otherworldliness. Uh, the and, then, and oh sorry, no no go ahead. And the thing I really was surprised to see is how much of the Lord of the Rings is in this. Mm-hmm, yeah. And not just the books, but think about the films, specifically Return of the King. Mm-hmm. When they are at the Witch's Castle, this is Mordor. This is Mount Doom, right? This is getting into mm-hmm. the fortress, Frodo and Sam, dress up like goblins, which whose outfits look remarkably like the they goblin do. defenders at the witch's castle in this film yeah and you know lord the the novel lord of the rings so the novel for uh i think is the wonderful wizard of oz uh is 1900 lord of the rings is 30 or no the hobbit is 37 and then lord of the rings something like uh, the 50s isn't it published 54 yeah okay 54 so certainly uh even just at, at, at the sort of novel level, um, there's got to be there, – there has to be some crossbreeding happening because Tolkien would have read all of that, you know? Yeah. So I think we've well covered kind of the connections in the culture, but does this film hold up? I think the answer is is pretty straightforwardly yes. I think that visually it is still a treat uh, to watch. Uh, the special effects in general are, are still pretty convincing and, and pretty cool. 
uh, or or at the very least, the stuff that's a little more cheesy fits the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the story, because it is fairly simplistic and and not too overtly political or anything like that, uh, hold, holds up very well. And and I couldn't stop thinking about while we were watching this that it, this feels really sort of proto-feminist or 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 just feminist, right? I mean, the major characters here are women. Uh, it's all about women finding their resolve, right? Uh, so it, I, I certainly believe that this passes the Bechdel test, right? Because it's women dealing with other women. I mean, it's the 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 witches and Dorothy really are the main characters, the main players mm-hmm. here, and, and the everybody ones with else power in the universe. Yeah, and 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 literally hold the power, right? Like mm-hmm. it's magical power that they all three possess. Uh, and it's about Dorothy and her transition and her you know her journey her uh revelation at the end right um although i guess maybe arguably she's kind of contained at the end uh because she just goes home and is like i'll never leave again yeah she's just put back (laughs) on the farm at the end so yeah i can see that i'm willing to buy it but i'm also willing to just discard that entirely because i think you can view this film without it and aesthetically as you mentioned i think it holds very well i think that twister scene at the beginning is phenomenal yeah, it's like really all cool. that they do on that set to make it feel like you're in the middle of a tornado. Yeah, we forgot the film Twister. <laughs> Definitely. Oh yeah, of this, course. With the right, cow flying course. through. <laughs> but on top of this, I really dig the fake world aesthetic. Right, like think of Disney World or Charlie mm-hmm. and the Chocolate Factory. I don't know what malfunction or wire crossing in my brain has triggered that, but. There's something about seeing those sets and knowing that they represent a world but are themselves not a world yeah. that I just really love. I think it is – it's the sort of self-contained nature of them that that they really – they look like you're walking through a, a like a Disney World set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think you're right that it, it, it creates the illusion of a larger world but we know that it's contained and it, and it does i agree with you 100 percent. it because it's a movie set right they're on a sound stage they're yeah. not outside they're on a sound stage and so much of that stuff at like disney world uh it recreates that and are, and are on sound not sound stages exactly but you know the sort of ride equivalent right and that's something that my wife was talking about during the watching of it that how disappointed she was as she grew up and found that these were not realized worlds, but right. you could see the stages and the edges and where the paintings of the backgrounds meet the actual stage. Yeah. And I was like, well, I, I think that enriches it. But obviously that's, that's something that I'm really drawn to for whatever reason. Well, and I think that uh, it, what it is, is that the amount of work that's gone into that is astounding. And that it is, you know, that we know that it's all either some sort of rear projection or forced perspective painting or, Mm -hmm. you know, little sets and things like, I think that gives it so much more flavor and so much shows so much more artistry than what we see with the, with the blue screen shit today, where it's just you and McGregor talking to nobody in a big blue room, you know? (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is arguably the same thing, but it doesn't feel the same way. Because the characters, the actors can see these sets and someone has sat there and painted every, you know, tree or whatever in the background. And that, even if you can see the seams now, which is a lot easier with uh, high definition TV and all the remastered whatever, uh, you know, versions of everything. When you, when the, even though you can see those seams a little more clearly now, 
it's sort of like saying that there are edges to a painting. Like, yeah, of course there are edges to the painting. It stops, right? It has to. Yeah, I agree. So, our final question, do we care about this film? I think we have to. I think that this is one of... I mean, there's a reason it's this high up on the list, and I know we really tend not to talk about that, but, you know, this really is, I think, one of the best ways to break us into that top ten. Uh... Because I don't see how you can dislike this film. Yeah, I mean, it's very important aesthetically, culturally. I'm not very enthused about the plot, which should be of little surprise to people. But yeah, I think the fact that I, I value it in spite of that says something. Yeah. And yeah, I would agree that I care about this film. Because even if the plot, right, the plot itself isn't terribly complex. The characters themselves aren't terribly complex, most of them. Uh, but it's the sort of overall, it's the themes, right? The sort of themes and ideas that come through. It you, it's very, it is a children's movie, right? At the end of the day, um, and it and it embraces that. And I think that there, not only does it give us nostalgia for our own childhoods, I think it, there's some nostalgia for the, you know, pre World War II America and all of that right and there's this weird generational thing where you know our parents saw this as children we've seen it as children that you know the the next generation of children have seen it as you know what i mean it's 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 the sort of universal children's movie yeah and i think it hits on a lot of levels and that's why perhaps it is where it is but that's all the time we have for today so we will be back next week on patreon for the patrons of the arts only if you haven't signed up for it now is the time now is the time there's so much to listen to there are what is this like 70 films or something 40 or 70 something like that in the I think we're in 80 now 80 i mean this is you for the five bucks you get all month to flip through it and listen to whatever you know there's so much content lots of content for your dollar and this coming week Ethan's choice was Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's, a film that I feel like I should have seen, but never have. I haven't seen it either. Barely know anything about it. Uh, the song is currently playing in my head. <laughs> I know what I you're talking about. I think that's unavoidable. Yeah. But And then we'll return in two weeks back to the AFI with number nine on the list. That's 1958's Vertigo. Vertigo. Ooh, Hitchcock. Yep. Highly anticipating this one. Uh, I also forgot to mention that we have a rundown. I think it's the 18th installment also yes. next week. 90 so films. Look forward to that. But until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I'll get you, my Maddie. And your little spoiler, too. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.